Today, historic day, because we are bringing to an end our long series on the book of Hebrews, and this is just a day really to uh, reflect on all of that and, and just talk about where we've come to and a little bit about the journey. But uh, hopefully it's been a good series for you. Uh, I've got some stats here that I've compiled on the uh, Hebrews series. 13 chapters, 303 verses, 21 sermons, 210 hours of TV editing, 18 crying babies, 14 groans, one abusive email, that's 26 amens, most of those Gary Marshall, and a 35% drop in attendance. All right? That last one's uh, just kidding. But um, there you go. That's, that's been our series in Hebrews. So what have we learned from the book of Hebrews? What have we learned? Well, you may have learned this. Women aren't supposed to make coffee because the Bible says Hebrews. <laughs> hey, you like that? Yeah. <laughs> I told you that'd get a laugh, Mike. So Mike didn't think it would. Yeah, I like that. You can actually buy those clocks, $29.95. See me afterwards? No, I don't, I don't sell them, but they are, they are available for sale. And so Hebrews, is just, it's been a great journey. What I'd like to do is just reflect on, on this a little bit this morning and just try and draw some themes together on where we've come to. And as a way into that, uh, I don't know about you, one of the things that uh, has been great about this series is that it really has, I feel, got us reading our Bibles a lot more. And I know just having talked to many of you, because we've worked through a book of the Bible, it's been easier to follow along with what we've been doing. And you can read ahead and I know many of you have taken the Hebrews challenge and you've read the whole book and every two weeks or so. And hopefully, this is not to guilt those of you that haven't, but for those of you that have, hopefully now you will really be feeling you've got a great, strong grasp on this book. And of course, there's always more to know and discover. But it is through reading and through studying ourselves. And this is so much my heart for what these times are meant to be about, that I want us to move from being spoon feeders to self-feeders on the scriptures. And so if I can be a part of helping to equip you with the tools to read, study, and apply the Bible for yourselves, rather than cultivating an over-dependence on me, that's where we need to be. And this systematic exposition through a good chunk of the Scriptures, I think, plays toward that. Because it means that you can, either before or after the, the message at some point, do a bit of your own work in the Scriptures. And I, and I just encourage you to do that as much as you can. So much of your learning and, uh, and just what you get out of these series will depend on the work that you put in outside of these times. So this is just a catalyst for that. But it's been great to hear how this has got you reading your Bibles and just getting into the Scriptures yourself, going away from these meetings and talking about it in your life groups, around your family dinner tables, just among peers, talking to yourself, whatever you need to do. But uh, that's, that's, so, that's so encouraging to me because that is so much of what I see my role as being, fostering that kind of stuff. So that is fantastic. Um, it, it's, it's been awesome, I think, going through this series, starting to sense a little bit of solidarity maybe with what the original audience of this letter might have been like, what they might have been going through, what they might have been feeling, some of their experiences. And it's so important that we do that whenever we come to a book of the Bible, whenever we come to any verse of the Bible, because it's very easy for us now, two, two millennia removed from all of us, to just take these verses and books way out of their context and they just become abstract floating ideas and theologies and things like that, removed from their historical circumstances. So always, 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 we want to put them back in the world out of which they came and get to know this audience. You know, reading Hebrews is a bit like listening to a one-ended phone call, one half of the phone conversation. You hear what the author's saying, you don't quite hear what's being said back. You don't quite hear what's, what's coming out and, and what the experiences are that this is being written into. But by digging behind the text, I've loved this experience of just feeling some solidarity with these, with these people in the first century, this little cluster 
of Jewish Christ followers in Rome in the first century and just getting inside their heads a bit, hearing this as they would have heard it and trying to understand how would they have responded and how is it then that we should respond today. I think these letters tend to come alive when you appreciate the world out of which they come. What we know is that uh, in the first century in Rome, there were between 40 and 60,000 Jews living there, minding their own business, uh, carrying on life, worshipping at the synagogue, going through the Jewish um, regulations, observing those traditions, all those kinds of things. And then at some point, in the, around the middle of the first century, late 40s, early 50s maybe, someone from Paul's missionary circle made it to Rome. I don't quite know how, don't know who it was, it wasn't Paul, he didn't get there until later on, but one of his close compatriots got to Rome and started preaching this gospel that a Jewish tradesman from Nazareth had been raised from the dead, that God had raised him, and in doing so had vindicated him as Lord and as the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And through this proclamation by one of the apostles, a bunch of people got converted, converted as it was in those days. Christianity wasn't a separate religion to Judaism, but simply the fulfillment of it. And included in that group was a bunch of Jews who then began to give up the traditions of their ancestors and follow Jesus because salvation was now found in him alone, not in, in the offering of animal sacrifices or association with the temple and the law and all these things. As a result of that decision and coming to have an allegiance to Jesus, these Jews began going through a massive amount of suffering and disgrace and persecution, the types of which are really unfamiliar to us. They began being persecuted at a government level. And it wasn't just at that level. It also filtered down to a family level. They were ostracized by their families. The door was pretty much shut in their face. They weren't invited to family banquets and lunches and meals anymore because they brought shame on the name of the family and on the entire Jewish race. Because in the first century, the gospel really didn't have too many friends on any side of the cultural divide. Uh, for, for the Jewish mind, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 1, for Jews, it was just scandalous. A scandal that you could claim that a crucified, cursed criminal on a cross was the Messiah of Israel. That was tantamount to blasphemy for the Jewish mind. And then over on the other side, for the Greek mind, it's just hilarious. It's a laughingstock. It's completely moronic that you could claim all the virtues of wisdom and might and, and, and athletic prowess and military vigor and these things are suddenly thrown out and you have this, this criminal on a cross who you're bowing down to as Lord. Greeks just found this the butt of many, many jokes. So Christians, followers of Jesus, were constantly ridiculed, shut out by their families. They lost promotions at work because of this. They were slandered and abused in the marketplace. And then through the years, there were waves of persecution at a government level. And at the moment, this time this letter was written, Emperor Claudius was, was most likely in power. And he would send in Roman legions just to rough up the Christians. And they'd seize property, and they'd beat people, and they would refuse to let anyone off the hook unless they would proclaim Claudius, the emperor, as lord in some form through one of these incense-burning rituals or something like that. Just the simple profession that Caesar is lord would be enough to free you. And yet for these followers of Jesus, it was unconscionable that they could give up their confession that Jesus alone is lord. And through refusing to bow down and worship the emperor, they entered into a whole wave of persecution. Uh, houses were taken, they were thrown in prison uh, without any real kind of trial as, as we would know it today. And so you can imagine, you know, that these guys are sitting around in, in homes in Rome, in the underground church as it existed. There couldn't really be any, any public expression of this. And you're sitting around in, in what would be similar to your life group meetings. And there's just these vacant chairs there. Because one guy from the group is downtown 
trying to haggle at the courts to get his property back that's just been seized randomly. Some ridiculous reason given, but we all know what the reason really is because he's a follower of Jesus. And someone else isn't there because she's being tended to medically for wounds that she suffered in the same way Hadassah suffered them, being beaten by a Roman guard for not bowing down and worshipping the emperor. And that was the lighter of the types of punishments you could expect. This other guy over here usually comes to the group. He's spending the night in a Roman prison cell. We don't know whether he's going to get a trial. We don't know how he's going to be treated. Probably there's going to be some form of torture. And so the seats get more and more vacant around the room. And this is putting the people in Rome who follow Jesus under extraordinary, extraordinary pressure. Some of them, because of this, they've given up. It's too hard. They're thrown on the towel. And it's easy for us, frankly, to stand here and, and criticize them and tell them they didn't have enough guts or whatever, but this would have been just unimaginably hard for them. And it, following Jesus just became too difficult, at least publicly, and so they drifted back into the shadows of Judaism, back to the traditions that they were accustomed to, back to the synagogue, back where it was a bit safer, a bit more with the majority. Some of them were holding firm and were persevering, people like Hadassah, people who stood up to some of the persecution that was happening and continued to confess Jesus as Lord, continued to hold strong, and, and, and that for them meant various types of, of suffering. And some were just teetering on the edge, just not quite sure whether this was something they really wanted to stick with or not. This Jesus who had promised so much apparently to them wasn't really coming through, nothing was really happening for them. They weren't seeing much evidence of this new age and great promises and, and faith and all of this sort of stuff. They were just seeing difficulties and hardship and struggle and every day seemed a bit tougher than the last day. And so word of the suffering gets back to Paul's circle, uh, his, his missionary companions, and out of that experience, probably from somewhere on the other side of the Mediterranean, one of the apostles puts pen to paper, or pen to papyrus as it would have been, and, and writes this letter. It's a simple letter that expresses hope and encouragement and exhortation for these Jews living in Rome. This letter, which has now made it into our Bibles. And the whole emphasis of this wonderful piece of Scripture is that this Jesus whom you're following is infinitely and gloriously superior to everything and everyone that ever came before him. And as you've read it through, you've seen this is just a roll call of all the major figures, all the major personalities, all the major institutions and ordinances and traditions of Judaism down through the Old Testament era, lined up one after another and systematically shown to be inferior to the one who has now come, the one who is Lord, the one who is greater than the angels and who sits at the right hand of the Father, Jesus the Christ. He trumps every single one of them, greater than the prophets, greater than the angels, greater than Moses and Joshua and Aaron and the Sabbath and the sacrifices and the covenant, just one after another after another. And yet at the same time, there is a sense in which Jesus is not just better than all of these things, but he is their fulfillment. He has brought them together. So it's not just all this stuff is bad and Jesus is good. It's that everything that came before him always pointed forward toward Jesus. He is the supreme prophet. He is the supreme Moses, the new Moses. He is the new Joshua. He is the new Sabbath. He is the new high priest, the new tabernacle, the new temple, the new system of sacrifice is found in Jesus. And so he's the culmination of everything that came before him. And as Hebrews 11 just wonderfully detailed, all of these heroes of faith 
ultimately looked towards him. Even without knowing it, it all pointed towards Jesus. And so the author is able to turn around and say to his readers, you're not being unfaithful to the past. You're not being unfaithful to the storyline that God has been working out throughout history. In fact, you, above all, are being faithful to it. It's those who turn away from Jesus and refused to see where the story is now going, refused to see the surprise turn in the narrative where Jesus has now been made Lord. It's those people who are now unfaithful to the redemptive work of God. But you who have seen it and identified it and now pledge allegiance to Jesus alone, you are faithful to what God has always been doing. And the whole story is now being wrapped up in Jesus. And this letter that the author probably thought would get circulated a bit around Rome for a couple of years maybe and then be lost to history, eventually gets handed down and down and down, circulates more and more widely, and in the third and fourth century becomes canonized into the scriptures, the holy scriptures, which mean that we now acknowledge this is not just a man writing a, a letter to his friends, but this is in fact in some sense the word of the Lord for us, that God was speaking through him, not through some form of dictation, but through overseeing what's going on and overseeing these words so that we can say this is the word of the Lord for us, this book of Hebrews. It has a human author, but it also has a divine author. And we need to keep those in balance as well and never let one get too sidelined. So as you step back <clears throat> from this whole picture, there's a little verse right at the end of Hebrews, which is quite funny, really, when you, when you see what he's saying. In, in, in chapter 13, verse 22, he says, Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for in fact I have written to you quite briefly. I would hate to think what a long letter would be like. This is a standing joke among biblical studies people that Hebrews is described as a brief letter. But he says, I've written to you briefly, and look at the way he describes his own letter as he reflects on it just as he closes here. He calls it what? A word of exhortation. In other words, a word of encouragement, encouragement to strengthen them, to call them on to something. It is a word of exhortation. And part of the relevance of Hebrews for us as we step back and look at the whole package, the whole narrative of what's going on here, is to see not just what are the words on the page that we need to pay attention to, not just what is the, what, what is the, the life lesson for us in this little paragraph, but to get a sense of what is the author ultimately trying to do here. Not just what is he saying, but what is he doing? What is Hebrews as a whole letter doing? Well, it's a word of exhortation. It's a word of encouragement to a bunch of Christians who were really, really struggling, really going through it, and really being persecuted for what they believed. And ultimately, I think our journey through Hebrews isn't complete until we're able to draw something from the same model the author gives us of reaching out, speaking a word of exhortation or some form of encouragement to brothers and sisters in another place who are going through much more difficult circumstances than we are for the name of Jesus. That's ultimately what Hebrews is, historically. It's a letter of encouragement to Christians who are struggling. And it's easy for us to think, well, that kind of suffering, this kind of stuff that Hadassah was going through, that's, that's just first century stuff, you know? That's just Christians being thrown to the lions. It's a distant memory. It's almost a fairy tale. Nothing like that happens today, right? And here we are. You just be so blasé about it. And the reality is something quite different. Let me just read you a couple of stories. It's things that are going on right now in our world. In China, on the 18th of November, 40 leaders 
of the China Gospel Fellowship were arrested when officers raided a leadership meeting and arrested those present. 21 of them were released within a week, but the remaining detainees are still being held at the county detention centre. On November the 19th, all this just last month, in India, uh, religious militants beat a pastor and others and demolished a house church in a Mandwa village. According to a news report, members of the Bajrang Dal extremist group, together with local villagers, surrounded the church, tied up the pastor and his associates. It's always a pastor that gets it the worst, man, I'm telling you. And, and severely beat them. The church building was also destroyed. Uh, in Indonesia recently, a mob of religious extremists attacked a house church outside of Jakarta, smashing glass windows, destroying property. They threw bricks and stones at Christians. And according to Christian World News, church members were hurt, again, including the head pastor who received two stitches in his temple. In Iran, in July, an Iranian Christian couple were sentenced by the Justice Court of Revolution to be whipped two years after they were accused of attending a house church. These are the kinds of charges that are going on. These things are happening all the time. There are people uh, associated with our church here. Uh, I don't know whether you know Brad and Amal Brenneman, uh, related to Wes and Susie Brenneman, who were, who were up here a little while ago. They were working in a country that I won't name, in Southeast Asia, and there was a, an, an order that all non-nationals were uh, basically forced out of the country. And so, so much of their ministry there in relationally connecting with people in a very underground, very low-key way was lost. They were forced out to the States. That's where they are now, trying to recover some of this work. But it's very, very hard. All of a sudden, it just comes to an end. We know so little of these types of experiences. A guy that, as a church, we've supported this year, Victor Mang, working as a pastor in Myanmar, has been severely affected by the recent uh, police raids on the uh, democratic protesters and so on. And basic utilities have been, have been shut off. And even though this is not directly religious persecution, it's had a huge toll on the ability of the church to carry out its work. And many, many members of the church are struggling, and particularly in the area of food. Let me read you just one thing. Victor wrote an email. Randall got an email from him just recently. Here's an extract from it. He says this, Some of my church members are facing difficulties even for daily food. I often help them by giving rice and other important needs what I can. We give money for bus fare to our seekers and members who are far away to come to worship, and my family prepares lunch for them on every Sunday. I also help some poor students of my members. People are suffering even for food in our country. Your brother and for Christ, Victor. It's so easy for us here in first century Western world to be so indifferent to this. And look, at Christmas time, we're all busy. The last thing we need is to be having to think about people on the other side of the world and just freeing up more space to do this and that and, and another guilt trip. But friends, this can be part of what helps us become less self-focused at a time of the year like this especially. To be able to somehow step into the shoes of other people like this, understand their experiences a little bit better, and do what we can to somehow reach out to them is an incredibly important thing as Christians. Because the reality is that when you became a follower of Jesus, you were not just reborn into a holy little clique between you and God, or even a, a local assembly in one, in one place like this. You were reborn into a body of Christ that spans the entire globe and comprises people very, very different to you, whom you will never meet in this life people living in both affluence and poverty, of all different cultures and races and tribes and creeds and nations and tongues, and many of them suffering today because of the name of Jesus. And frankly, to those of us whom much has been given, much is expected. And I know that we live in a country where we still face forms of persecution. There is still antagonism to the gospel, and, and we, can, we can talk about that. But I, I would still contend that we still know nothing of some of the sufferings and extreme forms that take place around the world today.
There's a little verse in Hebrews 13, 3. It says this. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. And those who were mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. And behind that is simply the image of the body of Christ. That when one part suffers, all parts suffer with it. The idea is empathy. Feeling a little bit of empathy. I've got a mate who uh, I was talking to on the phone the other day. And I was just chatting with him. I've, I've been having some back pain this year. And we were just talking away about this. And he said to me, I've been having some sympathy pains. I thought, what? And he said, I've been having sympathy pains for you because I knew that you had a sore back. And I'm, I'm getting a sore back now in exactly the same place that you have this sore back. And he said, so you need to hurry up and get better so that I can get better too. <laughs> and and part, I don't even know whether he was for real, frankly, but um, part of me thought, what a freak. And part of me thought, what a friend, you know, if, if it's legit, you know. That, that he would feel that sort of sympathy pain for me. Um, and, and it wouldn't hurt us, in, in that sense, to feel a bit of sympathy pains sometimes for people in very different circumstances to our own, to feel a little bit of empathy, to try and just familiarise ourselves in simple ways with the plight of people around the world whose Christmas is going to look a lot different and a lot worse than ours, to try and step into their shoes, to try and understand their world, uh, one organisation that's very easy to do this through is Voice of the Martyrs. They have a website, persecution.com. They're very good at uh, feeding information through in, a, in an easy-to-understand form, and it's also reliable information because not everything you read is, but they've, they've got good, reliable sources and just a way of understanding a little bit, getting out of the self-absorption we have and actually putting our focus onto something else, someone else. And isn't it funny how your own problems take perspective when you start to do a little bit of this? And practically, the most powerful thing we can do, of course, for these people is to pray, to lift them up to the Lord. And we assume that that's not productive and not important because we don't understand the power of prayer. But if we did, I think that would be the first step. That would be the first thing we'd be doing, is lifting these people by name where we can to the Lord, asking for his protection, asking for his grace, asking for his comfort and his strength where they need to stand up. Some really difficult situations, places like... South Sudan, where there's just a real effort to eliminate visible Christian presence. Places like North Korea, where eerily similar stuff to what was happening in the first century is going on. Worship is reserved for the president to confess him as a god, and that's where it ends. And you see these parallels, and you think it's just history repeating itself. And for us to feel a bit of solidarity with these people, to really pray for them, and also where we can, and as the Lord enables us to contribute financially to them. We've done this as a church this year with Victor, but again, through Voice of the Martyrs and similar organizations, there is every opportunity for you uh, to contribute and partner financially to help uh, these Christians in various ways to resource their efforts overseas in places where they're really, really struggling. These are, are things we can do. They're practical things. Uh, it may not be quite, it's not quite where I anticipated the series on Hebrews ending in some ways, but, but deep down it feels fitting to somehow understand that these sorts of situations are still happening today and that we have a responsibility to emulate the author of Hebrews and trying to reach into that, trying to speak a word into darkness, trying to be a word of exhortation to people who are going through situations much worse <clears throat> than our own. And so as we wrap up, let me just tell you briefly how the story of Hebrews ends. Because we don't know exactly what happened to this particular community of followers of Jesus. We hope that we'll meet them in heaven one day and hear their stories and hear how they responded to this letter that was written to them. But we do know that soon after this letter was received, two 
major things happen. One is that a new emperor swung into power, Emperor Nero. And if you're familiar at all with Nero, he was the most eccentric and the most anti-Christian person that you can possibly imagine. And the atrocities that he committed against followers of Jesus were just, just unspeakable. He would dress Christians in flammable materials and then set them on fire and use them as torchlights for his garden parties. It's the kind of guy he was. He'd dress them in animal skins and set his hunting dogs on them. So, and, and you can imagine that because Rome's the capital of the Roman Empire, this is going to be at its worst right there in Rome. And so the sentiment that Hebrews expresses, that you've not, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, probably wasn't true for many more years. I think once Nero swung in, there would have been many, many of our brothers and sisters in Christ that would have lost their lives for the cause of the gospel. The other interesting thing that happened just a few years on from that is that in AD 70, the temple in Jerusalem fell <clears throat> at the hands of the Romans. That massive Jewish uprising, the Romans, heavy-handed, came into town and just leveled it. And I can't help thinking, and of course you can never, it's not ever mentioned in the Bible, but as you follow the biblical story, it's not a huge jump to imagine that this is somehow providential, that as God orchestrates a book like Hebrews to be written, in which so clearly the old system is found to be impotent, that there is no possible salvation anymore outside of Jesus Christ, and then a few years after this letter is circulated, the temple itself falls. And the old system is finished. No more sacrifices have been offered since that time. That was the end of it. That's why Jews now go to the Wailing Wall to wail for the destruction of the temple and what once was. But in the providence of God, and again, it's not that we want to see God as the author of every terrible event that happens and we don't want to, want to rejoice in any kind of suffering at all, but as an historic event, that God was somehow involved in making that iconic statement that the old is gone and a new way is found in Jesus. And so the gospel continued to spread for the next couple of centuries. And it spread and spread and spread until you get to Emperor Constantine. And it's so interesting, the time Hebrews was written, it was considered political treason to confess Jesus alone as God. 300 years later, Emperor Constantine, you can't become emperor unless you do confess Jesus as Lord. 300 years. That's the spread of the gospel. That's how far it had come. And of course, the church had its own problems once Christianity became the state religion, all that kind of thing. But you think of that impact, that influence from the margins of society, from a small underground movement, not through political power, not through structures of power, military might, nationalistic pride, anything like that, but just through the word of exhortation, just through a word of encouragement, just through telling people about Jesus, just through standing with those who struggle, lifting them up, praying for them, resourcing them as, as we're able to, and just continuing to get out the good word of the gospel and allow it to take root in the lives of other people, those conversations over the backyard fence. The movement grows and grows and grows. Every time the Christians are scattered, it just blooms in 10 new places. Romans simply can't shut it down. It just keeps going. And friends, this should be to us a word of exhortation today. It's how the gospel spreads. It's how the kingdom comes. Not with great, massive acts of power necessarily, but through the gentle words spoken and the spirit of exhortation. And so, finally, I think our journey through Hebrews isn't finished until we embody in our lives the same spirit that this author had to his friends living in Rome. That just as Hebrews was a word in darkness, a word of encouragement, that our lives too would somehow be that word of encouragement to each other, 
and to those abroad. That just as Hebrews was a letter, an epistle of hope and encouragement, that our lives would be a living letter, a living epistle of hope and encouragement. That just as Hebrews is, as the author describes it, a word of exhortation, may we too be a living word of exhortation to one another and to our brothers and sisters around the world, particularly those who are suffering for the name of Jesus. 